G'day and welcome to the Fly Fisher Podcast. Since 1967, we've been spreading the bug of fly fishing. Join us as we celebrate the fun of fly fishing and chat with characters that enjoy it as much as we do. Whether you're just starting out or have some experience, we hope our ego-free commentary helps demystify fly fishing and inspires you to visit new places and try new techniques. Today, we're joined by Philip Weigel to talk mayfly fishing in Western Victoria. Author of countless books, fly fishing guide, fisheries consultant, member of countless boards and committees, and of course, Flystream editor-in-chief, Philip has been a huge part of the Victorian fly fishing scene for as long as we can remember. One of Philip's early books, Call of the River, was a favourite early days for me, and when I met Phil at a fly fishing show at Sandown, he signed it for me and I was buzzing for weeks after the encounter. Few people have spent as many hours on Western Victorian lakes. Listen on as we dig deep with Philip to uncover the mayfly fishing secrets. Philip, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Andrew. Um, so, you know, mayflies, they're pretty po- it's a popular time of year, isn't it? It's a very popular time of year and when it all goes right, you understand why. I have a love-hate relationship with the little things <laughs> because... They must be tasty though. They must be tasty. The fish really and truly do love them. Yep. Um, we can't say that about everything that they eat, but we can say it with mayfly. Um, once they've made even a small appearance, fish are soon looking for them. Yeah. Not, um, not always as the adults or the, the fully formed done. Yep. But... Certainly as the nymph and or, or the spinner. Yeah. And one of the stages becomes an obsession for them. Yeah. So let's yeah. dig a bit deeper in that. Could you sure. mind just explaining the life cycle of the mayfly? So the mayfly that's most important in Western Victoria is Atelophobia australis. Sorry about that. That's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> if right, you like. Right, write tur- that down, guys. <laughs> the turkey dun or the lambda dun is a really good way to think of them because their wings have an inverted Y on them, which is the Greek letter lambda. Right, and you can see it really clearly. Um, and is that unique to that particular species? Of I mayfly? don't know, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's certainly on the lakes that we fish. That's the distinctive feature. But then again, on most of the Western Victorian lakes, the only large mayfly is that mayfly. There are a couple of smaller blue-winged olivey sort of ones that the fish may or may not get interested in. But the lambda's the the big deal. They vary in size. Um, I still don't know whether that's the sex, the time of year or whatever. Um, But the reality is on any given day, they can be anything from a size 12 down to a small size 14 or even occasionally a 16. So they do vary. um, But life cycle wise, they start life as a nymph. Um, And like most lake nymphs, they're quite a long and skinny nymph. They're not as chunky as uh, as the river nymphs. They don't have to be. They don't have to swim against strong currents. So when you're tying or buying mayfly nymphs, go for skinny. There's a real tendency among all of us, myself included, to think, of course we think like people, that chunky is good. We want lots of meat on the hook. Yeah, juicy. But that's the worst thing you can do for a mayfly pattern. The skinnier it can be, the better. Yeah. Um, that's the first thing you want on your mayfly nymph patterns. And your second thing you want is a really obvious wing case because that's a real trigger for the fish. Um, so a nice, dark, obvious, prominent wing case, which is the bit at the front of the fly that yeah. goes over the thorax 
really important thing to have. And um, speaking of skinny mayfly nymphs that we use, so the real, the best way I can describe a real mayfly nymph is like a earwig. So if you never, if you've never seen one, an earwig's a pretty surprisingly good representation, both in terms of size and shape. It's not exact, but it's good enough. Yeah, they're weak swimmers. They sort of wriggle like a, I don't know, um, like a mayfly nymph, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't swim fast. They don't swim strongly, and they're a really they're a really good target. And to the to the extent that. Um, when they're swimming to the surface, I sometimes wonder why trout even bother to eat anything else because they're so vulnerable, you know, so easy to catch. Um, but for most of their lives, and we think their life cycle is about 12 months from when they're laid as an egg to when they emerge, um, they're not that valuable. They, they hide really well on the bottom of the lake, um, in amongst the rocks, in amongst the logs. They stay out of harm's way. Do they get into the mud as well? <laughs> they, some of them we think do get into the mud, but mostly I see Adeliflebia, the lambda dun nymphs, on if, I, if you turn over a log, turn over a piece of bark, they seem to like that structure. And I'm sure they're in the weed too. Um, and I do know that if you, if you lose weed from a lake, it does knock them around. So they must like, like weed. But I think the, the key takeaway is as nymphs just general day-to-day fishing-wise, they're of some value, but they're certainly way more valuable once the mayfly hatch or emergence season starts. How long... So so from a nymph to hatching, how yeah. many years do they stay in the water, like, we, dormant? We, we think 12 months. We and think. that's the same for all of them? No, no. For different species, it's different. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot we don't know. See, the trouble with mayfly is they don't sting... They don't spread disease. They don't destroy crops. So from a broader society perspective, they're of very little interest. Um, the best you could say about them is they're a reasonable indicator of water quality. They don't do very well if water's saline or polluted. But other than that, they're a really benign insect, you know. They, it's, um, it's quite remarkable. Don't we have some of the biggest in the world in Australia? Um, there are some up in the in the northeast rivers that are that are pretty big, but whether they're the biggest in the world, I think that'd be a stretch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we do have some huge Kosciuszko Dunn variants in the. I've seen them up to about what's that, five centimeters. Yeah, big. Yeah, but they're 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 those are very rare. You wouldn't carry a lot of five centimeter <laughs> Duns in your in your in your box. Yeah, but our Kosciuszko Duns, they're they're a good size ten. Even size eight sometimes. They're the ones on the very fast-flowing northeast rivers. Yeah. But the ones here, they're, like I say, they're probably about a size 12 to a 14 most typically. Yep. Yeah. Um, so moving on in the, in the life cycle, then we get to the emerger stage. That's right. So at, at some sort of signal, and it's, uh, it happens twice a year, it happens in spring, um, as early as late September, and goes through until... December, I now think that they probably go right through summer but hatch in the evenings or at night. But the big important hatch that we all get excited about, the daytime roughly midday emergence or hatch, is around, uh, to be safe, be on the water at 10, and if it hasn't happened by 4, it's probably not going to happen. But if you do it for long enough, you'll find exceptions to all those rules. But you got to you got to start. You got to go for the middle of the bell curve. The outliers, and it's no way to plan a fishing day 
to rely upon something that might happen once once a decade. But it is a time to start getting excited, isn't it? You know, when, oh, yeah, when, yeah, when, yeah, yeah, when yeah. it starts to happen, you know yep. that there's a bit more yep. activity, the yep. fish are going to be keyed into it. <clears throat> and the other thing that you'll find is within a very short time of the actual emergences, so just to save people from confusion because we're already probably starting to talk in gobbledygook, so you can imagine the earwig that's been growing and feeding on the bottom out of harm's way for 12 months, say then swims to the surface, quite pathetically, gets to the surface film, when, and when you're only two centimetres long, the surface film's a bit like an ice sheet, I think. You know, it's not, not something that you can just put yourself through easily, but they then they sort of punch their way through the surface film, and then this extraordinary process happens where a totally aquatic nymph with gills that can't breathe out of the water, pops out of this, sort of unzips the wetsuit and out pops a wing. And you can see this happen before your eyes and shakes itself out of the wetsuit, drifts along waiting like a little sailboard. If you see an insect that looks like a sailboard, it's a mayfly done. Drifts along, waiting for its wings to dry and then flies off to the nearest bit of vegetation. They're not good flyers. They're quite fluttery. And as the name Dunn would suggest, they're quite drab. They're not very pretty. Um, they look like, you know, um, a weekend warrior in their camo. You <laughs> yeah. know, yeah. yeah. So they they fly, and that's for a very good reason because they're weak flyers. And once they land in their bit of grass or the branch of a tree or wherever they're going to hide for the next little while, they don't want to be seen by the lizards and the birds and the hundred and one things that want to eat them. And then the next thing that happens is, can you believe it, they shed yet another skin. Now, this until I saw a video of this, I've never seen it with my own eyes, but I've seen a video and how something with wings can actually shed another skin beggars belief, but they do. And they come out as the spinner or the fully-fledged adult. And the spinner is bright and pretty and it's a strong flyer mm. um, and... Basically, that's the phase that's dedicated to finding a mate and then the females lay the eggs and they die. It happens very quickly. So <clears throat> the after all this time living under the water, um, they get their moment of freedom and flight, but bad news, no mouth. So they can once they hatch, they can't eat and they can't drink. So they're living on their reserves, which is probably one reason why the Duns especially are so um, appealing because they're, they've, they've got to have enough energy to get through that sort of 24, 48-hour period before they can yeah. come back as a spinner, lay their eggs and So arguably and at their it. maximum nutritional value at that point. <laughs> You'd think so. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and I guess either way, there's no question trout love them. Either as the nymph about to emerge, the emerger the dun, the little sailboard, and then even as the spinner that comes back to lay the eggs, they're still quite appealing. Yeah. They even eat them <coughs> as a dead spinner, right? They spent do. Spinner. The spent spinners, and, and, and from a fishing point of view, spent spinners are the most exciting spinner. Yeah. The trouble with uh, the fully formed spinners is they're strong flyers, and so trout have to leap to grab them. And um, to just digress for a moment, Peter Hayes reckons that spinner feeders are like us getting into a car. He wrote this in one of his columns. And the windscreen's dirty. You get into your car and you think, oh, 
got to clean that windscreen. But once you're on the highway, all you see is the road ahead. You stop seeing the windscreen, don't you? Yeah. So the trouble with spinner feeders is they're up on the highway. They're not on the windscreen. And so flies that land on the windscreen are very difficult to fool a fish with. Um, when they're spent, though, they are on the windscreen. So when they're dead, when they're finished laying their eggs and they're just lying on the water, they're spent, they're on the windscreen, hallelujah, we can put a spent spinner pattern on the, on the windscreen and the trout will go, oh, yeah, there they are, and eat them. So if a trout's going to take a dun, they're going to take it as they're coming out of their shuck? That's the most appealing stage, and, the, and it makes total sense. Like everything trout do, does or trout do makes sense. It's just that it's not always obvious to us. So they're never doing stuff to annoy us. It makes perfect sense. And for them, why are they so captivated by the emerger? Well, because as predators, that's the stage that's utterly, utterly helpless. It can't fly. It can't swim. If you like, it's when the wetsuit's down around their knees. <laughs> you know, you're a human getting out of your wetsuit and the lion appears you're buggered. Yeah. You can't run. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can't dive back into the water and swim away. Yeah. Um, so that's they're so vulnerable. So it's you look at the extraordinary effort that fly tires have gone to to create emerges, possum emerges, paraduns, floating nymphs. You know, a million and one ways of capturing that few seconds in time. When the mayfly's got its wetsuit down around its knees. Yeah. And if it, the water's dirty or it's raining, are the fish not going to eat them? They'll absolutely eat them in the rain. Um, some of the very best mayfly fishing I've had is in the rain. Going back to them drifting along like a sailboard waiting for their wings to dry, um, obviously the quicker that wing drying process is, the less excited the fish are going to be. On a really bright, sunny day, which is never very good for a mayfly hatch anyway, a bright, sunny, windy day, you actually see the trout give up on the fully formed duns because they must get so annoyed at lunging for them, only for them to take off. But on a day like today, and for the listeners, it's, it's a drizzly, cool... Overcast. It's very hard. You put the washing out today, it's still going to be wet at 6 o'clock tonight. Mm. Um, and it's the same for the duns. You know, they, they, they stuck. They can't bloody dry out. And it's almost sad because you'll see them all washed. They never get to fulfil their life cycle on a really bad day. Good for us and the trout, bad for them. You'll just see rafts of them washed up on the shore because they never got off. They never dried out enough to fly away. So those sort of conditions, even in quite heavy rain, Ross, the fish will absolutely eat them. Mm. Um and their, their ability to find them in heavy rain is remarkable. Mm. So a complicating factor is, are they smart enough not to hatch in the rain when they've got no future? Um, and I suspect sometimes they are. So sometimes you might go to a lake in pouring rain and they, the mayfly are sort of somehow able to hold on for a day or two until conditions are more favourable. But sometimes I reckon their, their window of opportunity is pretty narrow. Eventually they've got to go. And in the weather we're having at the moment, that would be very true because the number of perfect days from a mayfly point of view are limited. There are so many wet days. So I think, yeah, they might be able to hang on, but a lot of the time you're going to find those mayfly hatching in the rain and the trout will find them and absolutely scoff them. Best day I ever had at Newland was steady rain, steady rain. 
Mm. Like I got wet, but I didn't care. <laughs> so, yeah, there's no hard and fast rules with the conditions dictating how the mayfly fishing might be. The, uh, the, the only thing I would say is if you want good done fishing, so that emerge mm. sailboard stage, you don't want bright, dry, warm and windy because they will get off really quickly and I don't know that it's actually ideal for them either given they've got no mouth. So I imagine they dehydrate quicker as fully formed adults in those conditions. That's just conjecture on my part. But for whatever reason, my advice would be if it's going to be bright and sunny and windy, don't hold high hopes for a good done hatch. But Andrew, as you say, anything's possible in nature. There's always exceptions. But um, do have high hopes perhaps for mayfly spinners though that enjoy those conditions. Yeah. So time of year is key. Time of year is key. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I, you know, I know, and I'm agreeing here. The best mayfly fishing I've ever experienced was on a calm, blue sky, warm day. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's right. So it, it, they break it, the rules. You fish, you fish for long enough, and you'll find the exceptions, which yeah. is why it's hard to. And and I've got to the point after having done this for you know 50 years, I've got to the point where I think you know what, when I t- tell people about how to fish something, I've just got to go for the middle of the bell curve. If I, if I try to cover every possible outlier, the stuff that happens way at the end, um, the one percenters, you know, yeah. my advice is going to be so bloody confusing. Yeah. So you've just and got to go. And we'd all tune out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd all, you'd all tune out. So, so, yeah, the middle of the bell curve stuff is if you, your cloudy's good, you know, you talk to any seasoned mayfly fisher from Kyle Jones to Scotty to Mark to mm. Peter Hayes, they'll be hoping for cloudy, cool conditions or cloudy, humid conditions. Yeah. That's what they hope for. Could you say with confidence that um, regardless of conditions, you're going to see some element of mayfly fishing? 100%. During your day? Yes. Regardless. In, in a good season like we're having at the moment, um, you're going to see some mayfly fishing. Yep. Every single day at the moment, there are mayfly about and every single day, mayfly getting eaten. Now, whether that's as mostly as duns or mostly as spinners, that's the variable. Yeah. Yesterday, humid but sunny, um, a lot of fish reading spinners. Yeah. Um, not not so much the duns, but some fish reading duns. What around here, so the Western Lakes in Victoria, what makes them so prophylic in the I think I think their fertility, but it's a bloody good question, Ross, because there are some lakes that I feel should be good mayfly lakes that aren't, like Lake Wartook, for example. On paper, it's got everything. In practice, it just isn't a good mayfly lake. Lake Parambit in Western Victoria, same thing. Um, I could give you all sorts of, you know, it's never quite as convincing when you, when you solve a problem in reverse, but maybe in those lakes it's predation of the nymphs. I know Jim always felt that really good galaxia lakes in Tasmania were never quite as good as mayfly lakes, um, and maybe something like that's going on. But to be honest with you, I don't know. I just know that the genuine Central Highland lakes are some of the most reliable for mayfly hatches. And they're the ones around here in Ballarat. Yeah, so Wendaree, Newland, Moorable, um, Hepburn sometimes, Dean sometimes, uh, Cosgrove sometimes. Uh, the, uh, the, list, the list goes on, but they're the, they're the, they're the good, good mayfly lakes. And flies for those lakes? Do you want to go into detail about... So we've already mentioned the skinny brown nymph, really important fly to have in your collection. Um, 
you're, you're welcome to wait until the fish are only eating dries, but you'll miss a lot of opportunities. Yeah. It's probably so, worth mentioning uh, your book, Fly Fishing Western Victoria, yes. which is a, an unbelievable resource for anyone wanting to fish those lakes in terms of uh, fly selection, time of year, yep. where the mayfly fishing might be yep. so prolific as well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, not wanting to sound like a smarty pants, but yeah, that's why I wrote it. And it's, a, it's hopefully a sort of middle of the road between overloading information and not enough information somewhere down the middle. And the, all the mayfly lakes and tactics get mentioned in that. Um, so, yeah, skinny mayfly nymph. Yep. Then you've got to have your emerges. Um, and the, for some reason, which I do not understand, <laughs> different emerges work better on different days. Um, yesterday, uh, guiding here at Millbrook, it was the possum emerger. That was the fly that made the difference, yeah. right? That's the fly I could get them to eat when they're eating dries. Rather but than rather than I guess talking more broadly about flies that just generally work, let's um let's just break it down to be a bit more specific. So the hatch hasn't happened yet. We're yep. talking, you know, maybe before ten a.m. Yep. Uh, we know that there's probably a bit of nymph activity. Um, Good point. What yep. uh, what sort of flies might we want to use at that stage of the day? I think you could safely cast and retrieve a single or maybe a double mayfly nymph, skinny mayfly nymph, maybe have one of them with a bit of flash or a bit of a dab of orange or just something attention-seeking. Would you ever put a little bead head on the point and then maybe something unweighted above? Sure, you could do that. Yep. yep. In indicator or no indicator? So for that, I would probably cast and retrieve. Yep. If I, I, I get uneasy about using flies as indicators, but this is the exception. Um, I would definitely, if you if you can cope, I would definitely fish a dry fly, like a shaving brush, like a paradun, like a possum emerger that you can see well enough and that floats well enough to suspend that nymph, and either fish it static if you can hold your nerve, or even just give it a little figure eight every once in a while, um, because fish will be looking for that sort of food. Uh, and then, and then once 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 the hatch starts, the dynamic will change. But because fish have been feeding on these mayfly now for several weeks, you will have fish just come out of nowhere and eat that dry fly, yeah. As well as the nymph underneath, the money's probably on the fly underneath, but be ready for one to eat your dry. And remember, if they eat the dry, you got to wait a moment. If they eat the nymph, instant. The moment that fly twitches, you lift. That's a great tip. Any so any it's too. It's like it's 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 really even for me. I've got to almost be saying it to myself so I don't stuff it up and go the other way around. Yeah, keep reminding yourself, even yeah. though you've done it more than one time. Yeah, yeah, I've done it. I've done it a couple of times. <laughs> um, is there anything else you know, technique wise, for that stage? Look, you could please yourself. I mean, you could pull a big wet. You could do whatever you like. But me, I probably. I'm not going to be on the water long before the fish start feeding on mayflies, so maybe 10. Yep. Um, and so I'm thinking... Gentlemen's hours. Gentlemen, it is gentlemen's hours. Hey, Peter, even you'd be out of bed by then. <laughs> <laughs> hey, welcome <laughs> to the podcast, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even, even I'm, I'm just trying to take it in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even I'm out of bed by then. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I sympathise with you, Peter. I'm, not a, I'm, not a, I'm good on the evening rise, not so good on the dawn patrol. Not an early riser. Yeah. Um, one thing you've touched on there, though, is a bit of movement in the flies. Yeah. Um, maybe just talk a bit more about that, you know. I, I think uh, movement movement's good. Where however you're fishing, a little bit of movement can alert the fish to the presence of your flies, 
and mayfly fishing is no different. I guess the golden rule would be if it's pretty flat, not a lot, right? Just enough, maybe almost incremental, almost not enough to even make the fly, the top fly wake. Um, different subsurface, you can move the flies quicker even if it's flat. But if you've got a, at least one of the flies is on top, whether it's a dry by itself or the nymph underneath, a bit of movement can help alert the fish to the presence of the fly. Um, as it gets rougher, you can get more violent. You can pull the fly harder and faster. What I about guess. using the current in a lake or the wind direction um, for your drift? It's a really, really good question. And a lot of um, when I'm guiding, I find a lot of people quickly recognise that their fly isn't drifting at the same speed as the real emerged duns. And they get quite worried about that because um, they're seeing the real duns get eaten and they think, oh, this isn't. Uh, my fly's not getting eaten because it's not drifting right. We'll, we can touch on this again in a moment. But the, the important point is, yes, to the extent that it's possible for you to get a natural drift, by all means, go for it. And that'll often mean casting into the wind or even casting across the wind. But truth is, you're rarely going to be able to match that genuine, unattached to a fly line and a leader drift that you're going to get with a, with a real done so my advice would be don't get too hung up on that and one good piece of news is mostly your dry fly is actually going to be an emerger even though you may think of it as a dry fly rarely do we fish um, mayfly hatches with fully fledged standing on tippy toes duns occasionally we do but mostly we're fishing those emerger patterns that are sitting partly in the water and by their very nature, the emergers do not drift as fast, even though you can't see them very well, do not drift as fast as the fully-fledged sailboard duns. So the emergers, you get a bit of you get a bit of leeway with your drift, is what I'm trying to say. When you half half of the insect's still in the water and it hasn't got an upright wing to sail it along, it's not going to drift as fast. So don't beat yourself up too much if you're not getting what think is the same drift as the um as the real mayfly yeah good advice one thing i wanted to ask is the color of mayfly and matching that with flies yes it can be very important of course trout being trout they sort of mess with you a bit when it comes to color um it's a good it's a good point peter because this year for whatever reason i think the mayfly are a little bit lighter than normal and I'm certainly finding I'm using lighter coloured duns a little bit. Now, that may not last and it may not be, it may be that it's not as important as I think it is. Of course, with all fishing, your belief in your fly has a big impact on how well it works and how well you fish. Um, but I do think if I was buying some flies at the moment, I'd make sure I got some quite light brown flies as well as the really dark ones. Now, the dark ones have the advantage of contrast. Maybe in dirty water, having that real claret-coloured or even even dark brown-coloured dry fly may help the fish find it and notice it. You're, getting, you're probably going to get a better silhouette. But regardless, I'd carry a bit of both. I'd carry some light ones and some dark ones. But I do feel that for whatever reason, and it, let's face it, it's an unusual year climatically, um, the mayfly seem a little bit lighter to me this year than normal. Interesting. 
Um, so getting back to the uh, the stage of the hatch that we're fishing, let's yes. talk hypothetically. Yep. Um, so you've uh, been lucky. You've had a fish that's come up and, and eaten the dry fly off yep. your dry dropper yep. Yep. setup. Yep. You've landed that fish and looked around and you're starting to see quite a few fish rising at this point. Yep. What do you do next? Look, personally, I'll probably take the nymph off. Um, if I'm seeing enough fish move, I personally probably take the nymph off. Partly because I think it's just a slightly cleaner thing to present. But if you're fishing for your life, you'd probably leave the nymph on. The other thing to think about when you, whenever you're using two flies, and look, there's some serious fish out there at the moment. Um, if you've got two flies, you're going to have a bare hook swimming around with that crazy fish. If there's logs, flooded grass, weed it increases your chances of bust-off. And as Andrew at least knows, and maybe you guys do too if you read my stuff, I'm obsessed about not getting broken off. I don't enjoy it at all. <laughs> you like getting him to the net. I like getting him to the net, yeah. I, I'm, I'm like John McEnroe in his early days if I lose one through something like a fly catching and, um, and getting broken off. So um, as soon as I feel I'm going to get enough eats on the dry, I'll just fish a dry. And it's really clean. You know, a lot of, a lot of like in so many fishing situations, a lot of successful mayfly fishing is only partly about your choice of fly. And you've got to put that in sort of bold and underline it. <laughs> you've got, you, you can't just reach into your box and find the cure. It hardly ever happens. Yes, you want a fly that's good enough. But once you've got that fly that's good enough, you've then got to fish it like, you know, your like life a mayfly. Like your life depends <laughs> yeah. on it. Yeah. You gotta go after those fish. You know, the more fish that see it, the more chances that you have that it's gonna be eaten. And let me tell you, as someone who through Millbrook gets to see a lot of fish response to flies, there is no such thing on any day as the perfect fly. There's just flies that are a bit better and flies that are a bit worse. And countless times I see fish a particular fish refuse a fly and then we get that same fish to eat that fly five minutes later or three or 30 seconds later right it's a lot to do with you know it comes down to things like what direction the fish is facing when it sees the fly um how well the fly landed in relation to where the fish was you know you if you, you want to make the fish put in ideal circumstances do as little as it possibly can to have to eat your fly. If you have to make it move a meter to eat it, maybe it's less likely than if it just it's in its face, without spooking it. Of course, I got a my best fish at Mirable during a Dunhatch recently. I was in this bay and the fish were coming up a lot, but very randomly, which was hard because they were hard to track. And I got a little one, but felt that I wasn't doing as well as I could, so I went back into another narrow bay where I had a really good view under the water because there was reflected trees in the background and I saw a single rise but the difference was I was then able to Polaroid that fish it was a good fish four or five pounds I Polaroided it and therefore I was able to do the perfect presentation I landed my possum emerger about a meter ahead of it um, right on its track and it just came up and ate it now if I hadn't had that view of that fish I wouldn't have been able to do that perfect presentation so I guess the important thing is, had I seen that one rise and just thrown the fly out there somewhere, I don't think I would have caught that fish. Yeah, it would have. The odds wouldn't have been with me. 
So really work hard on trying to put the fly where the fish is going to be. River fishermen are terrible at this because in rivers, fish basically stay in the same spot. They're drift feeders. They're relying upon the current to bring the food to them. If you see a rise on a river, yep, that's where it is. If you see a rise on a lake, that's where it was. <laughs> so you've got to try your hardest to judge its speed and direction and get your fly ahead of it. You know, really work hard on that. And I know that doesn't that that's not easy, but it is achievable. And even if you have a hunch, follow your hunch. So are, are, you, are you taking your time? Like, are you just taking that extra one or two seconds to try and uh, maybe polaroid the fish or anticipate the direction of it? Look, polaroiding is a rare gift. So I think more you're looking at the the the. Hopefully seeing a tiny bit of the fish, maybe it's fin, and saying, oh, that one's going from left to right. Or another really good rule is if there's breeze, they almost always feed into the breeze. If they're rainbows, they go real fast. If they're browns, they're slower. So it can be really hard to, to, to lead a rainbow. You can still try, but you're probably, by the time your cast gets there, it's probably five metres ahead. With a brown, it's probably a metre ahead. I'm generalising, but that's something to go on. So if you see a rise and you just do not know which way that fish is going, try to land your fly um, a metre upwind or if you think it's a rainbow, five metres upwind. I've got a question on that. Kyle, when I was fishing with him, he said you can actually look at where the water push is going. Yeah, you you can get that sort of teardrop effect. So... Yeah, you can do that. Yep. Not necessarily. Oh no, it's it it, it it it's it's a it's a good trick. Yep. Um get that sort of teardrop. And to me it's almost intuitive, so I can't describe in detail how that how that works, but that teardrop idea is probably the, the best way to think of it. And I did want to go back to when you said about breaking fish off, and I know this question's been said to death, uh, yeah. but it is gonna be something we get asked in the shop yeah, a yeah, lot. Yeah. What thickness, leader and tippet should you think people should be fishing for this type I of fishing? I wouldn't go near Mirable with less than 3x best quality tippet money can buy. Yep. Right? And fluorocarbon tippet? Yeah, fluorocarbon is good. Look, some of the some of the um I, I get really wary about talking brands because uh I have my favorites, but I don't want to denigrate a brand I haven't tried. Yep, good. Right? Yep. But um so some brands, what I'd say is ask in your shop. Yeah, well, but, I was going to say a lot of people say, oh, if you're fishing dry fly, you should fish mono. I mean, we don't say that in the shop. But. No. So I, 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 I would have a mono leader. Absolutely do not use a fluorocarbon leader because <laughs> it'll drive you nuts. But if you put a metre or two feet of, um, I know they're two different things, uh, depends on the circumstances but if i'd want my overall leader to be about 11 or 12 feet yep so typically i get a nine foot leader and i'd tie uh and i'd buy a 2x leader right so that's that's basically all i carry is 2x leaders and then i then i would add my 3x to that um and as andrew would know i think and people will disagree violently with me on this but i think tippet diameter is overrated as a reason why fish won't eat a fly. That's that's going to answer a lot of people's questions. Yeah, yeah. So don't think the 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 secret to success is going down three microns in diameter. It's not, right? So put it another way, there's no question that trout can always see the 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 leader and see the tippet. What matters, just like you can always see the strings when you go to a puppet show. What matters is whether you associate them. So if it's a good puppeteer, 
before very long, you just see the puppet, not the strings, correct? Yep. Right? And you're, you've got a one kilogram brain and you still, you're still fooled, right? So, so trout don't go, hmm, that, was, that, 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 that needs to be just a, two microns finer and then I'll <laughs> eat the fly, Yeah. right? Now, there's limits. You can't have your fly looking like it's stuck on the end of a bit of fencing wire. But my attitude as someone who sees two or three break-offs a day in spite of everything I do is how heavy can I get away with, both for myself and for whoever I happen to be guiding. Not how light can I get away with, how heavy can I get away with. And I could tell you story after story after story of people who fish fine and just get broken off all the time. Now, if you don't care about being broken off, Good on, good on you. I'm happy for you, but I do, and uh, and I I just do whatever I can to avoid it. And on that, here's a simple thing: check your knots every time you tie a fly or a bit of leader on, no matter how much is going on. Give it a good pull. If that's when you want it to break, you don't want it to break it when the six pounder, the one and only six pounder, that eats your fly all day at Maribel, eats your fly. That's not when you want a bad knot to break. You want it to break when you're going, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. And I think especially if you've had it sitting in the car overnight, you yeah. know, you're fishing yesterday yeah. and then fishing the next day, that morning, All that, if you're not testing your knots, then you're a duffer. Give it a, <laughs> give it a, give it a yank. <laughs> give it a yank after you've landed a fish. Give it a la- yank after you hit the tree behind you. Um, it's, it's what's it going to cost you, two minutes yeah. to retie? Nothing. Yeah. 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 Um, Losing fish hurts, doesn't it? And you've got a, a fairly recent tale. Of <laughs> Do I? I don't. I don't, I don't I, he doesn't want to talk I, about it, folks. <laughs> um, yeah. But it is raw, isn't it? You know, when you it lose is. one. It is. And, and, and sometimes you lose them through no fault of your own and sometimes there's those awful fish that you lose and doesn't happen often with me, but it still does happen and it happened at Lake Fines a week ago where I probably lost the biggest uh, lake fish I've had on for a while. And hang on, folks. I just got to go and get a, a box of tissues. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all right. It's just the onion. <laughs> um, yeah, and it was in high in hindsight. I still think maybe I should have done something differently. That's that's the bottom line. It was a it was a it was a single take on a hard session. Only take I had. Best fish I've hooked for a very long time, and uh, it it took me me and the fish a while to realise what was going on, and the fish woke up quicker than I did, uh, and just went from being a, a big heavy sluggish weight to being a a bloody maniac, sort of a ten pound fish in a half pound rainbow's body. Isn't it funny how some people are always going to beat themselves up for having maybe done something wrong in reflection rather than saying, oh, I did everything right, but I lost that fish. Yeah. I think that's a certain breed of fly fisher that maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think uh, self-awareness can be useful or it can be painful. (laughs) (laughs) It can be. Um, Getting back, you know, we're we're fishing, I guess, you know, the the start or the the peak of the hatch at this point. Um, Are you ever fishing two dry flies? Do you ever find that that makes it easy? easier to 100%. maybe cover those yep. targets yep. a bit more accurately? So a, a really good fly when fish are being difficult is a floating nymph, like a, a, a genuine nymph, not a, not a purpose, well, I guess it could be purpose tied, but a floating nymph is a really good fly for fish to eat for whatever reason, um, I don't really know. 
uh, and it's and it can be superior to something that's easier to see, like a paradun, like a possum emerger, um, like a shaving brush. So having one of those about a foot off the back can get you eats you might not otherwise eat, <laughs> otherwise get, I should say. Um, so yeah, two dries is definitely worth thinking about. Um, a good tactic when the fish are not rising all that often um, and it's ripply is to figure out a pair of possum emergers. Possum emergers float well, so you keep them dry and you put them about a metre apart, one on the dropper, one on the point, and just cast them out and sort of figure out them across the top. Claret carrots are good fly for that. Most of they won't eat the carrot. The carrot's great for visibility and it's great for keeping the flies up, so to speak. Going back to the floating nymph, is that a standard unweighting nymph, lack, for lack of a better term, that you're ginking you up? You can do. Or is it a nymph that's a bit of foam tied into it? Well, yes, you could put a bit of foam in it. But for some unknown reason, the more you seem to uh, embellish it from being a standard nymph that's floating, the less effective it seems to be as that magic fly, right? Yeah. So, so I it guess could be the same fly, the skinny mayfly that you've been fishing subsurface yeah. that you're now treated. Now you it up and it floats. So Got, the, yeah. the other day I was actually, I tied on a, uh, a, a one of my, or not one of mine, a mate of mine ties them, uh, tied on a, 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 a skinny brown nymph, nothing special. Good good, good fly though, like, like, but no sort of secret ingredient. It's just a nice standard skinny dark wing case nymph. Um, and I chucked it out and it floated, right? And I, my intention had been to fish it as a sunk nymph. And a very difficult, a fish that had been very difficult came up and ate the floating nymph off the back not the shaving brush at the front. And that particular session, that happened a few times. And I actually began to think, I hope the nymph doesn't sink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I don't know, Ross. Maybe a bit of foam in it helps. Yep. But it, it, it doesn't seem to, the, 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 as soon as you start putting posts and things on, whatever the charm of that floating nymph is, you seem to lose it once you start making it more into an emerger. So, and that's why you need two flies because you can't see the bloody thing if you haven't got a cider fly. Well, we have a so nice like, floating nymph in the shop, don't we? But I think it's tied with a. Is it foam in the. But yeah, there's a little. It, it little may work. It may work. If it's unobtrusive, yeah. um, I don't know how much they see from the side, maybe. Mm. Is, is that what it is? No, it yeah. is. It is very unintrusive. It's yeah, just, so, just yeah, the wing case yeah. just has a very small bit of sheet foam over. Yeah, the, yeah. And I reckon, top. I reckon that'd be worth a go. Hundred mm. percent. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's say the, there's the, it's a full blown hatch, one of the biggest hatches you've ever seen. Yeah. Fish rising everywhere. Is yep. there anything you can do to tip the tip tip things in your favour? Uh, pray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, in a big it, hatch, they are harder. They're harder, but they're not impossible. I guess if I had to give you one piece of advice, it would be not to get into a fly-changing frenzy. Um, again, to use a little guiding anecdote, and bearing in mind it's the same insect, same district, uh, it's just that I get to see this day after day, so I get a lot of input into how fish behave in hatches. I remember last year on one of our best lakes, there was a massive hatch, like there was a done every foot, which is... You know, be careful what you wish for. Mm. Um, and I had I was guiding two very good anglers, and one of them he tied on a fly that he believed in, which was just a paradun, nothing nothing fancy, and he just bloody fished that 
hard. His mate, every time I looked around, he was changing his fly, right? The guy who stuck with the single pattern, he caught four, and I think maybe the guy changing flies every five minutes got one at the end. Both, both really good anglers. Um, if nothing else, this guy just lost time, mm. you know, by changing flies. Like he probably spent literally half the hatch Changing flies. That fly anxiety, it's, it's like, easy to it's fall easy. Oh, that's oh, me. Mate, you that's, know, that's me. It's, <laughs> it's, it's uh, what can I say? It's, it's something I have at times, but I do think that little anecdote tells a good story about just don't get too caught up in the fly. My fly's not, my, my fly's not right. I mean, if, if, if nine out of ten real duns aren't being eaten, then probably fly isn't going to be the solution. And then you can go down the path of twitching, moving. But I think the thing I'd be investing most heavily in is just trying to get that fly in front of the fish. Yeah. You know, cool. I think sometimes we're looking for the easy way out with flies, and often it's that presentation. And presentation takes work. You know, it takes going out and practicing your casting. It takes speed. The thing that's lacking most for people fishing mayfly hatches is speed. I have what I call a three-second rule. You see a fish move, one, two, three, that's when your fly's got to be there. If it's four, five, six, the opportunity is fading away very, very quickly. You know, you've got that moment where you know where the fish is and where it's likely to be because of polaroiding or because of its rise form, but within several seconds, it's gone. You don't know where that fish is anymore. Yeah. So the stream fishing thing of, oh, yeah, let's do about half a dozen false casts, <laughs> you know, because uh, let's go and even, you know, have a sit down and have a sandwich and then you'll still be rising. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's point and shoot. Yeah. That's your most useful cast in a, in a, in a, in a you watch the good done, done fishers who are actually targeting fish, they are quick. Yeah. Single they're, false cast. And they're then fast, boom. accurate and, and accurate. quick. Yeah. Right, so that is that's a really important investment, and so in a, in the situation you're describing, Andrew, of a blanket hatch, which yeah is is very intimidating. I think your best investment is find a fly you like that you believe in, mm. and just keep trying to put it down the fish's throat, basically. Yeah. Um, so what happens between uh, the emergers and the spinners? Is there a bit of a lull in between? Uh, sometimes those? overlap. It's totally dependent on the day. Right. Totally dependent on the day. Yesterday, they were almost. Both going at once. Yeah. Humid, warm day. The duns were hatching and the spinners were falling. So are these spinners from the emerger hatched the day before? Correct. Right. Or, yeah, a day or two before. Day yes. or two. Right. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Cool. So the spinners are going back out onto the water. Um, spinner feeders are distinctive because they're splashy. Um, they're very easy to notice, much harder to catch because of that windscreen thing. Looking yep. at the, the trout are looking at the road ahead. Yeah. Um, and when they're on the spinners, do you have any particular favourite flies that you do like to fish for I, spinner feeders? I think I think a red or an orange spinner. Um, and when they're on the when they're leaping, they're hard, right? Yeah. It's the same thing. Presentation presentation's important. In a perfect world, your fly is going to alight just as the fish um, gets to that point because that creates the the illusion of flight but in practice that is hard to do because we don't usually have the luxury of being able to track the fish yeah. under the surface yeah. so um, in the western vic uh, area it, they're either orange or red in, in color yeah yeah and i don't being color blind i don't believe the actual tone is all that important but i do think that 
pardon me, orange or red is important. I do think yeah. they see the colour. Yeah. I used to think they didn't, but I think they probably do. Because cool. I've too too often have I changed from a done pattern that's very, very similar to my spinner pattern and it's made the big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have a, a preference for heavily hackled spinner patterns or I'd, more parachute? I'd have both. Yeah. Yeah. And and when they're on the spence, everything changes. Then you can have just a nice sort of uh, parachute spinner and they'll eat it, no worries at all. Yeah. But that's a that's a rare luxury and it's often late in the day. And you'll see a lot of leapers before you see the fish beautifully clomping on the, their way through the Spence through spinners. the spence, which is hallelujah when they do that. And be- even better than a dun hatch. Yeah, okay. Mm. That's interesting. Because they eat everything. And um, do you like the flat wing spin, spent spinners? Uh, no, I don't think you need it. You, okay. can, you, you, you need a, a little bit of a post isn't going to hurt you. Yep. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that once they're on the spence, I don't think it matters too much so long as the fly is fairly flush in the film. Um, and yeah, they're they're really lovely. They're methodical, you know. So if you're lucky enough to be at you know Newland or Wendery at sort of five or six o'clock and on a warm evening, and the the spence are on the water, and you find one, they're not not every fish does it. Like that's the thing about trout; they're not homogenous, so. Not every trout's doing the same thing, but if you find one on that little quiet corner that's just going along the rock wall, going clip, 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 and you put your spent there, you got him. You're pretty much going he's to get it. He's going to eat. He's going to eat it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, so, what sort of time would you be uh, pulling the pin at, at, on the, these days? It totally depends on the day. So, your daylight today, spinners aren't going to be a, fe- a feature. So, I'd say why? Uh, because it's not warm enough. They don't like to fly when it's cool and windy um, and and cloudy, right. yeah. They like a bit of warmth. It's a good. It's good in a way because it means that what can often be a really bad done day can be turned around by good spinner action. Although, except for the spence, you'd rather have the duns. The done day today. Yeah. The done day. The done day <laughs> is your is your safer bet because leaping fish are hard to catch. Yeah, not impossible, and some days easier than others. Some hackled spinners, some low floating spinners. Um, We've covered it before, but um, even skipping your fly across the surface, I like don't, a I don't fly. think you can. Yeah, yeah. Look, not a not a silly idea, Ross. If you're desperate, you could use the carrot as the and put a spinner off the back of it. I think that 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 works sometimes. I think movement's part of the problem or lack of um, when we're fishing conventional spinner patterns. So I'd give it a try, but it wouldn't be the first thing I'd try. I'd, yep. tr- I'd try just fishing a single spinner. And if then if I got desperate, yeah, I might figure out a um, a spinner behind a a, a carrot, um, about two feet behind. Yeah. And when a spinner's coming down on the water, is that it laying eggs? Uh, yes, often it is, and sometimes it's just the way they fly. Okay. Yeah, they end up touching the water. Yeah. Cool. Um. What about, you know, like this time of year, uh, springtime, everyone talks springtime mayfly fishing. Yep. Uh, but we get a good hatch in autumn we do. as well. Not as reliable and not as long lasting, but it can be good. Right. Yeah. So you find that that springtime fishing is almost always better than the, the autumn fishing? or More reliable. So you can have great fishing in autumn, but you know, the hatches tend not to be as, as reliable as is the bottom line, and they don't tend to last for as long. It's probably, probably about a six-week thing, whereas – in a good average mayfly spring hatch, you'll get at least a couple of months out of them. Yeah. And let's yeah. talk this season more specifically. Yeah. I mean, pretty cool temperatures, high water. Yep. Um, if you were a betting man, what, what, like, do you think the, the mayfly fishing is going to go that bit longer this 
spring if I in had the summer? To, if I had to bet, I would yeah. that that will happen, but I can't be sure. Yeah. Um, because yeah. If last year's nothing anything, certain in trout world. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But if last year is anything to go by, um, when did the mayfly fishing kind of come to a screaming halt? Not till December. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I think they're gonna drib and drab at least uh, well into the end of November and maybe into December, um, especially on the good days. You know, the cloudy days. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the bright sunny days will be getting hotter and hotter, and that's probably a, a bit of a downer for the for the duns. Um, but get a day that's cloudy and so forth, and I reckon you'll find fish up on the duns in December. Yeah. yeah. And general fish size and condition at the moment? Off the charts. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So what is that purely because of the mayfly or everything, everything that's going on? Everything. Yeah. So yeah. What, what other stuff is a fish feeding on Look, at fish, this time of just year? Just fish love water, right? So this is a really important thing. There's There are plenty of... Downsides of floods, but but uh, but trout size and condition and welfare is not one of them. Um, they thrive in lots of water and on lakes especially. It just increases their habitat. Um, shores that haven't seen water for a long time flood, so they get the benefit of all that flushed food for a short while at least. Um, flooded grass and timber and so forth is habitat for all the things that the fish eat. You know, the more cover both for trout and the stuff they, they eat, we know that the more cover you give their food, the more food there will be. It's incredible. Mm. Like it's like, it's, a, it's like this magic ingredient. Places for food to hide um, will increase the amount of food. And then there's the you know, decomposing vegetation, which is what mayfly and midge and lots of other things eat. Um, so you've got lots of that yeah. on tap. Um, so, yeah, high water is a very good thing for growing trout. Yeah. yeah, and mayfly time. You know, is there a, a, a stick catter still a, a yeah. prevalent? Yeah, um, still still good. And damsels, you know, damsels are great. You yeah. know, damsels are there in their droves. Yeah. So um, if you were giving someone advice, just fishing this time of year, obviously have a fly box full of mayfly patterns, but yeah. also have a bit of stuff. yeah. Damsels are really good, like the Fulling Mill Living Damsel. I'm happy to nom- nominate that fly because it's in the mouth of a very big trout it finds at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is. I've written about it before. It's one of my, my one of my very favourite flies, and uh, it's just got that long, skinny body and. Um, you could definitely, while you're waiting for something to happen, do a lot worse than just fish one of them. Yeah. Um, because damsels are big at the moment. Like, there's damsels are pouring off the water. I was going to say that, like, you've yeah. listened to this podcast, you're excited, yeah. you go down there, yeah. you don't see any mayfly feeding. Yeah. So yeah. stick caddis, damsels still the thing And to stick do. caddis are still really strong, mm. you know. They're a really strong fly. Um, and that little little orange or yellow or, or bright green head it just helps the fly stand out from the crowd which i think can be useful at this time of year without being too much and you even see trout smelting you know that's what i said right at the very beginning um you know mayfly are sort of a little bit of a i I love them but the downside of them is it's so hard at this time of year not to head out to a lake and think i'm waiting for the mayflies to hatch Mm. you know back in early september you're not thinking like that you're just going out and fishing yeah um, you're not hanging your hat on a particular event, but yeah, when the mayfly hatch happens well, it just it's so seductive. <laughs> 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 you know, you just can't help but think, oh, I really want the mayfly to hatch. Yeah, and everything else just feels like you're going for the motions, yeah, waiting, yeah. waiting for the main course. Yeah, yeah, 
Um, Waiting for the feature. Is it your favourite time of year, would you say, fishing-wise? Like, I know you've got... Oh, God. It's hard. No, it's not my favourite time of year, but when what's happened over the last few weeks happens, you kind of think, yeah, there's a reason why we get so excited by these guys. Yeah, the mystique is just Yeah, and it does, and everything wants to eat them. Like, the biggest trout in the lake to the smallest, they all want to eat mayfly. So you don't yeah. get you never get to a, a situation where there's a huge hatch going on and you can't see a fish rise. You, ah, yes, it does happen. Yes, but when that Rare. happens, I'll guarantee you they're eating the nymphs. Okay, got used you. to happen a lot at Harcourt. Yeah. We hardly ever used to catch fish on dry flies at Harcourt. I haven't been there for a little while. Uh, the mayfly may or may not be back, but um, we just catch them all pulling nymphs. Yeah, because yeah. you'd hardly see a rise, and the fish obviously were there under. As I said earlier as well, you know, you almost wonder why they bother to eat the. The, the dry flies when the nymphs are just such sitting ducks you know they're weak swimmers easy to catch um i was at woods lake in tasmania one day and uh you could have walked across the duns and i reckon you we were seeing one done one rise across the entire lake yeah uh every five minutes like the duns were thick they yeah. were building a scum on the side of the boat but the fish just weren't willing to no nah, but take on the nymph the yeah no problemo isn't that weird yep yeah. And like you know, that's there'll there'll be a sound reason for that from yeah. the fish's point of view. Yeah, you know, if we're if we're really cold blooded about it, and again, we just got to be careful that we don't know how trout think, right? They're just their world and everything is different. But it's like I say, it's probably harder to make the argument from the eat a dry fly off the top when there's all those nymphs swimming up. Yeah, but they do. Yeah, yeah. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> but just Bloody not reliably hard. Ross you know it's not you will get that awful situation sometimes where there's all these duns and no rises but I'll, one thing I will promise you is the fish will be eating the nymphs yep yeah. one thing I think it's worth uh, reiterating and talking to you about is just prior preparation before fishing springtime yes. mayfly feed yes you know we, we've talked a bit about filling your fly box with appropriate patterns yes. and having a bit of stuff peripheral to that. Yeah. Um, Casting-wise, you, you mentioned... That quick, accurate cast. Not necessarily long, probably out to 15 metres. We'll see you through most situations, which isn't to say there's not going to be the odd fish at the very end of your casting length. But being able to do that, you know, accurate, quick, 5 to 15 metre cast, that's going to be your bread and butter. Yeah. Do you think yeah. maybe like working on change of direction and yeah. change of distance? And wind, for God's sake. You know, you got it. the fish are not going to rise just to be nice to you. You know, they may be rising with a strong wind on your right shoulder if you're a right-hander. That's an awkward cast. You're going to need to do an offside cast to cover those fish. You may be needing to cast straight into the wind. You may have vegetation, tall trees on one side, you know, if you're going to go and do your casting practice, just don't stand with the wind at your back in the middle of the oval and aim at targets because it's rarely going to be like that in real life. The thing to work on is the difficult stuff. It feels good to cast a long way though, doesn't it? It does feel good, <laughs> but it can be your worst enemy. Yeah. yeah. No, that's one, great One advice. problem with casting long, uh, even if the fish eats your fly, there's a fair chance you're going to miss it on the strike. Yep. Right? So... Yeah, don't get too caught up in distance. Like I say, 5 to 15 metres and quick. Maybe not even a false cast. That's what you want. The only reason you should be false casting most of the time in mayfly time is to dry your fly out. Yeah, Just put a false cast in to get the water off. What about line management? I don't think you are a guy that uses a, a stripping basket, but no, you know. But, but I, I, I'm not going to object to it. If yeah. you can get you, it's 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 not because I don't think they're a good idea. It's just I don't use them. Yeah, 
Yeah, but no. yeah, certainly yeah, when it comes to speed and, and yep, and especially and with messy lake shores with the lakes being so high, yeah. yeah, there'd be a lot to be said for it. If you can get yourself used to it, you just got to be, you've just got to be careful that you're learning to use. You're not learning to use them at a time when uh, you need your concentration on other things. I so suppose. practice with the stripping basket yeah. before you actually that, hit the that's water. A very, that'd be excellent advice. Yeah, yeah. Um, anything else that like prior preparation wise, like maybe check your tippet? Yeah, you 100%. So yeah. tippet's got to be great. Um, obviously floatant. So think very carefully about your floatant. Another, another thing I find really handy at this time of year, all floating fly lines will sink a little bit at the tip if, you, if you're using them a lot. Um, it's no fault of the fly line, it's just life. Um, so I carry some of that pay at paste. Yep. That sort of, uh, or muslin might do the same thing. And every so often I just put a little bit on the top of my, uh, the butt end of the leader and the first couple of feet of the fly line because it gives you that nice lift when you when you need to go to recast. You're not sort of dragging everything under yep. on the basis of the sunk bit of line at the, at the end of your fly line. So I think that's a handy little thing. Uh, yeah, good floating, some um, powder so you can dry your fly real quick because, you know, I think, a lot of mayfly hatches come down to, or mayfly days come down to moments of opportunity. So the quicker you're back in the game, the better. And desiccants are really good, quick, simple way to retreat your fly. Don't worry if the fly looks a bit sort of white. That'll go in a moment, you know. So just give it a good shake back out there. Those um, I don't use them myself, but th- those uh, cloths or things that you can use the to fly get... Kerchiefs. Fly kerchiefs. Fly kerchiefs, yeah. 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 Get, get the water out of the fly quick. We you know, do sell the powder and done colour as well now. Oh, do you really? <laughs> yeah, we do. Okay. Well, yeah. well, the world's gone mad. Yeah. <laughs> Constantly, but, but in a good way. Stuff. In a good way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People are clever, aren't they? Yeah. They what about um, you know rod wise or outfit wise? What sort of line weight and length are you? I reckon to? you want to be. I, I'd be on a nine foot six, and I'd be five or six weight. Yeah. Uh, because you need to be able to cast in those strong winds if you need to. Um, and it doesn't hurt to have a little bit more grunt in your rod when you're trying to subdue a big fish. Yeah, so, uh, and a little bit of extra length, I reckon, gives you a quicker, longer cast. Yeah. yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, do you ever see a need maybe on a, a bright, dead calm day, you know, spinner feeders sipping late afternoon to, to go down to something even lighter so that you can maybe fish lighter tippet? I would probably just lengthen my leader to get that lighter presentation rather than go to a lighter outfit. Yeah. But that's just me. Yeah. You could make an argument for doing what you're, what you're saying, have yeah. a lighter outfit in backup. But, you know, there's also a balance to be struck between overcomplicating the gear and carrying around all this crap. We like to complicate the gear, though. Yeah, 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 <laughs> you do. You do. You do. But um, if, you, if you've got it back in the car, fine, but don't. I don't think you want to be sort of having to put all your stuff down and fish and then pick up all your stuff and move to the next. You need, you need to have a certain amount of mobility. You need to have the ability to move around. So, you know, good, good storage. Carry a lot of stuff on you that you can carry easily. But uh, I wouldn't want to be running around Mirable with a second rod sticking out of my backpack at the moment. No. Yeah. No, it's I, not going to work. I agree. I, you know, Newland, where you can park your car and maybe walk only 50 or 100 metres to the water – it's practical to go back and get your rod if you do want to do what you're suggesting, which would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, but I think manoeuvrability, for God's sake, get yourself a decent net. Um, 
you know, I just can't believe people turning up with these little sort of ornaments, <laughs> you know, <laughs> as if they're going to strain a thick cup of tea. <laughs> and I think, why are you even bothering to carry that, yeah. you know? We always upsell the nets in the shop no. and people will look at you like, oh, I don't catch those big fish. Yeah. yeah. If, you, if they use it once in their life, Ross, they'll be thrilled oh, they bought it. They are. As soon yeah. as they go fishing, yeah. they're like, yeah, you were right. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. It only takes one up. fish. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And it's the big fish you really yeah. want in well, the net. And yeah. you can't pick if you catch a small one or a big one, you know? Yeah. No, well, I think most of us secretly would like to catch a big one. Yeah. So <laughs> if you've got a net, it really improves things and um, – and the other thing, talk to the guys at the shop, but you need a net you can deploy, that can carry easily and deploy easily. I like a magnet, a lanyard, and on the back of my vest, mm. as soon as you have to start kind of assembling your net, you, 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 yeah. you're on a hiding well, to nothing. We got a couple of those uh, telescopic auto-eject mm. nets. So you, you fold them open like, with one motion, yep. and then you press a button and the handle. Yep. It's about four foot. And yep. we they just went like that, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, like well, four of them. Yeah. They just so, went long as they, so long as they're strong and they've got a big... A big hoop. Yeah, yeah they're big. big hoop, yeah. Um, I'm all for it. But you've got to be able to deploy it quickly. You don't want to be sort of, you know, reaching around trying to unclip stuff. Yeah. I've got a magnet. Yeah. It works really well. You've got to have a lanyard, though, because if you don't have a lanyard, you'll lose your net. Yeah, that yeah. does happen. Yeah, <laughs> which you probably wouldn't be so sad about, but well, I'm very sad about it. I've lost a couple of nets myself, and yeah. so I have been sad about it. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. Yeah, I actually yeah. found a net last year on the Midder. All oh, right. Yeah, no, yeah. this year. Actually. Yeah, probably one of mine. Yeah. yeah. No, I like, can I, I have my net back? Yeah. Thanks, mate. If anyone's lost a McLean Way net, don't oh, yes, don't come. Mine. Don't ask me. <laughs> yeah, but you you uh, you need something. You need to be able to get it off quickly, which means it can't be too hard to detach, which means it can get caught on a branch and fall on the ground. I think it's worth mentioning weight is important too. You know, we do carry around so much on we our do. shoulders we do. fishing. Yeah, and look, so look, I'm a, I've got a big a big McLean's weigh net. Um, but they're light though. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. So I'm just saying that's what I use for what it's worth. Magnetic attachment, lanyard, and I just I just love it. It's a it's a really good system. But that's not to say it's not the only system, and I like the idea of that extendable handle because that yeah. could be handy. Oh, that for guides. That's yeah, I think it's and even for non guides. You know, if you're on a steep bank and you need to be able to get the net down into the water quick, yeah, that could be. Well, you don't have useful. to push the button. You can fish it as a two foot handle, or you press the button, bam, yeah. you're at four yeah. foot without having to move your hand. Yeah, for you and your stumpy little arms. <laughs> <probably makes sense. laughs> yeah. Bill's got pretty big reaches. You can yeah, say. No, but I, I, I would never be. I, I, I've never heard anyone say. As they're battling a big fish, gee, I wish my net was smaller. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I've never heard anyone say, gee, I wish my handle was shorter. Yeah. 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 So carrying maybe, but uh, when you're actually using them, yeah, long handle's a, a good idea. Yeah, and there's if, so if many other options. You can find a practical shop, way, but, yeah. good you advice. know, nets that have to be unfolded, mm, I don't know. Let's um let's talk a bit about favourite mayfly waters in Victoria, um and maybe you know more specifically about the ones that are fishing quite well now. You know, obviously Moorabool Reservoir's been on yep. the radar for a lot of people. Yeah, some big fish for good reason. There. For yep. good reason, it's a big water, which is great because it can soak up quite a few anglers. People have to walk, so if you're prepared to walk that little bit further, you're going to put yourself a bit of distance between anglers. But hey, you go to Little Pine or Penstock, um. I don't hear people complaining about the crowds there. No. And you can almost be struggling to find a bit of shore where you can, where you can fish. So when it's happening, you don't need a lot of space. Um, but but Newland, I'm, I'm already hearing of opportunities there. Can't vouch for them myself because I haven't tried, but 
reliable sources. Um, and Wendery, yep, Wendery's happening. Helps to have a boat, but not essential. A lot of little fish, but some better ones in amongst them and really good hatches. Probably worth pointing out with Moorable, uh, before we move on too much, that, that the wading conditions are pretty difficult at the moment, aren't they? They are, yep. And, yeah. and, 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 and another good reason to get your tight, Quarters casting sorted before you head out. And, and thigh-high waders are probably pretty useless. Uh, yes, but there's interesting wading regulations. That yeah, you can't so actually wade I'm not, I'm not going yeah. to go into those. I don't think you're going to get into trouble for being a little bit in the water, but if you're a lot in the water, well, that's up to you. Yeah. Yeah, but I can't sort of, you know, no. say that that's, that's, <laughs> Moving that's, on. What, yeah. that's, that's what's allowed or not allowed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and Tullerook, and, does and it get a mayfly hatch at all? It probably gets a bit, but it's very, it'll be very dirty at the moment. So Tullerook traditionally hasn't, but after a se- succession of wet years, I have seen them in just about all the lakes, including the Colibin lakes. Right. So uh, anything's possible in a year like this, but to go for a mayfly hatch, I reckon Dean, Newland, Cosgrove, uh, Wendaree, Mirabal, um, and then... Talbot can be good, yep. um, but a lot of those have been very, very high and very, very dirty. So it's going to be, if you're going to be lucky enough to be on those lakes just as they become fishable, of course you've got fish that just haven't been fished too. Yeah. So it's, it's worth being a bit adventurous. And of the Gra- Grampians lakes, which seem to be the standout mayfly fisheries? Fines is really the only one, yep. and it was underwhelming the other day for whatever reason. Um, there were duns. Apart but, from hooking the biggest fish of your life, yes, but that was on a dam- <laughs> that was on a living damsel. Yeah, I, I didn't see enough uh, mayfly action to fish a mayfly. But Fines is the best of the uh, standalone best mayfly lake in the Grampians. But like I say, on this day, and look, here's another thing about mayfly: um, it's very rare for them to hatch uniformly across any water, and that applies to Tasmania, anywhere. So. Having said that the mayfly fishing on fires wasn't very good, there's an, I covered a fraction of it. So they could have been on them somewhere else in the lake and I just didn't know about it. And that can happen on any of those lakes. You know, mm. you hear it all the time. Someone at one end of Wendaree had a blinder. Someone at the other end of Wendaree didn't see a done. Mm. Um, and that can flip the next day. I remember even in Tasmania last season, you know, guys were... It was this, this frantic... People were coming back from Little Pine and... Some guys had a ripper go and others hadn't seen it done. And it was just all to do with where they were on the lake. Yeah, that's, we used yeah. to see that all the time in the club. So we'd yeah. go fishing, there'd be 20 people. Yeah. One guy would catch like yeah. more than anyone else. So it's a really hard call how much time you, you invest in um, f- trying to find the duns versus how much time you try to spend actually fishing. And I don't have an easy answer for that. Um, one thing you can do is use seagulls and swallows. They're usually not – seagulls are excellent indicators of duns if, if the lake's got them. Crows on the shore are a really excellent indicator of duns on the windward shore. They're often – crows work out that they – Craig Coltman taught me this, and that's absolutely right. They'll be on the windward shore picking off the duns as they blow in. Um, but seagulls, almost always, if they're out over the water, they're eating duns. Swallows can be eating other stuff, but they're still a good indicator. Do you have a preference to being on the windward shore or on the lee shore during a mayfly hatch? That's a really hard one. Um, to get an eat, it's much better to be in broken water. Yeah. However, uh, 
for whatever reason, over the last couple of years, I've found a lot of duns coming off the lee shores and the fish on them on, in that sort of water. Um, so it's a hard one. Um, I would rather find duns in the wind, but a lot of the time at the moment they seem to be hatching in the calmer water. Is it likely to uh, identify fish rising to them earlier on the lee shore and then later in the day on the windward shore? There's been a little bit of that, but I still reluctantly have had to fish the calm water a lot to find fish to consistently target. It, target. Yeah. yeah. So go oh. figure. Yeah. That's mm. oh, fascinating. Mm. Guys, any other questions you've, you want to ask? No, I'm just blown away. There's <laughs> 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 a lot to like take. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, I think we've done a really good job actually at getting some gold information out there from you. Um, it, it, it's just such a pleasure to, to, to sit down with you. You know, like you, your wealth of knowledge and, and willingness to share is, is like no one else. Um, you've been just a, a terrific ambassador for fly fishing and, um, you know, we're just so, I guess, uh, proud and happy to to uh, call you a mate and a, a friend of the fly fishers um and uh look I, I just hope you keep doing what you're doing mate because it, it really does add to the experience for fly fishers around victoria so much um and we hope to get you back on the airways at the fly fisher podcast very soon thanks very much guys thanks phil yeah.